tomorrow a slight chance of showers in the afternoon, high near 50. Uh, chance of precipitation about 80%, and Tuesday night rain showers likely, uh, then a light chance of rain and snow showers. Uh, chance of precipitation is 60%. Little or no snow, snow accumulations expected. Coming up next, making waves. Stay tuned. Good evening and welcome to WJFF's Making Waves. Making Waves is an hour-long radio magazine that airs on WJFF every Monday evening at this time. Kevin Graff is executive producer and audio engineer for Making Waves. Theme music for Making Waves is composed and performed by Cindy Rickmond. My name is Barbara and I'm your host for tonight. We will start with the Kingfisher Project, our weekly examination of the opioid and addiction crisis. Tonight, it's first Mondays with Bill Williams. His guest, Dr. Tim Hunt. Dr. Hunt is involved with the uh, initiative now going on in Sullivan County, conducted by the Columbia University School of Social Work. Bill and Dr. Hunt will be talking about the opioid research project that's called the Healing Community Study. Just after Making Waves, we'll hear from Peggy Johansson, director of the Mamacating Library and one of the organizers behind the Sullivan County Poet Laureate Initiative because it's time to find a new Poet Laureate for 2020. Later this evening, we'll speak with SUNY, associate, SUNY Sullivan Associate Professor of Theater and Speech Jessica lopez Barkle about the two upcoming plays at the college, Edward Albee's Zoo Story and The Dutchman by Amiri Baraka. And lastly, WJFF's Tim Bruno will be talking with Sullivan County Communication Director Dan Hoost about county preparedness in the event of, corona, of a coronavirus occurrence. And now, here's the Kingfisher Project with Julie Pizal, founder of the project, to tell us more about it. Welcome to the Kingfisher Project, an information and radio project based here at WJFF. The project was established in 2014 in memory of my daughter, Rebecca Pizal, who was shot and killed due to her heroin addiction. Before she became addicted, she wrote an essay about an injured king kingfisher bird she rescued and wrote about when everyone else gave up. At her memorial service, her former teacher, Mr. Ogazalik, read the essay, and since then, a number of people wanted to do something to draw attention to the opiate crisis here and across the country. Thanks very much, Julie. You're welcome. And uh, we want to welcome Bill Williams. It's first Monday with Bill Williams to the air tonight, and also Dr. Tim Hunt of Columbia University. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you. I'm going to jump right in, if I may, and introduce Dr. Hunt. Um, he's been working in addiction, substance abuse treatment, and HIV prevention and care for over 29 years. He's an associate director with the Social Innovation Group in the Global Health Research Center of Central Asia at Columbia University School of Social Work and is a co-investigator and community engagement lead on the National Institute of Drug Abuse and SAMHSA-funded Healing Community Study in 16 New York State counties. Um, just for the record, HEAL, H-E-A-L, and I believe, stop me if I'm wrong, Dr. Hunt, but it's the acronym is Helping to End Addiction Long-Term. That's right. Um, can you, how did you, uh, how did you get to get involved with this study? And uh, give us a little bit about your background and what, what brought you to this study, and, and then we can talk about the study itself. I'd like to find out from you what... Uh, you, I mean, you've worked globally, but I'd like to be a little more local if we could and talk about the Catskills in particular. Uh, absolutely. Um, I appreciate you having me on, on, Bill, and to be able to talk about the the, the work of our communities across New York State, um, as well as the, our sister 
states uh, that are involved in this healing community study. Um, I've been working in the field of addictions for going on 30 years or so as a social worker and a family therapist. The last 15 years or so working at Columbia uh, at the School of Social Work at the Social Intervention Group, we've been developing interventions, testing them uh, through studies, and then disseminating them along with the CDC and other partners, but trying to really support the field in, in using what we call evidence-based practices or evidence-based interventions to, to get health care results. And we've been working on addictions in general, HIV, uh, gender-based violence, and other areas. And we said as a team we need to really put our energies here at home um, in New York State on this, this uh, crisis, the opioid crisis. And so we were honored to be funded by NIDA along with three other states, Ohio, Massachusetts, and Columbia, um, and um, along with um, Massachusetts, Kentucky, and Ohio with uh, New York, and Columbia University being the lead, Dr. Nabila El Basil is the principal investigator. So we were awarded last April, and we have been uh, engaging our 16 counties here in New York State who have reported some of the highest uh, overdose rates of opioid overdose rates, um, at least 25 per 100,000 to be eligible to be included in the study. So this is a really rare opportunity that we have to work with communities. Uh, one of the largest studies in history because of the, the, the real critical nature of this, uh, of this uh, epidemic with 47,000 Americans dying, you know, uh, a year uh, since 2017. And we, we wanted to join those efforts. But most importantly, working with communities uh, it's a community-driven approach with our 16 counties utilizing data and trying to coordinate that data to help them make very uh, efficient, feasible, and impactful decisions around evidence-based strategies that have been shown to be effective in reducing overdose deaths. Um, I can say a little more about it. Uh, I'll pause there, Bill, if there's something more specific. No, no, that's, been, that's, a, that's a wonderful start. I've seen it refer even on on information online from Columbia. I've I've, I've seen it here referred to as a study, as an, an initiative, and an intervention. Uh, is it all three? Is it any of those? What what best describes it in your your opinion? Yeah, it's actually it is actually all three. Um, what we're actually observing and studying and collecting data around is how communities work together in making decisions on how to address an epidemic such as the opioid crisis. So we're, we're actually testing an intervention called the Communities That Heal Intervention, which is a, a phased approach for communities like task force and coalitions to come together uh, around a joint effort to address something like the opioid crisis. So we're working with these communities. We partnered with local county health and mental health commissioners in these 16 counties um, to implement this Communities That Heal intervention. So we began that in January, and we'll be working with, with our communities throughout the next four, four years. Um, they're actually being implemented in two waves. We started with eight counties in January, and the second eight counties will begin the intervention in two years from now. So what I, what I have to say, having now crossed the state from, um, from Erie to Lewis, to Suffolk, uh, I have to say that I'm quite impressed with the commitment of our state, of, of our sisters and brothers who are addressing this issue, bringing together people who represent families, those who have had been impacted by the epidemic itself, those healthcare providers really committed to the issue, but also those community uh, co um, collaborators who are bringing people together from faith-based organizations, from law enforcement and criminal justice to hospitals, to bring them together to sit and talk about how do we make decisions together to address this. We're learning from them about what works and what uh, resources are needed in order to make it work more efficiently, effectively, and also how to sustain, to sustain this kind of approach. Because, you know, we, we certainly don't want to come into a community and and um, bring in a certain amount of resources uh, and energy and then leave, but we really want to see it continued as much as possible. 
That's why from day one we partnered with our New York State Department of Health, with uh, the with OASIS, um, as well as the Office of Mental Health and uh, Mental Health and Hygiene, to address uh, the issue together and to work in more uh, synergy with them uh, with their current efforts. I have to say there are three primary practices that the study is um, focused on that has been shown to have the most impact and evidence for reducing overdose deaths. That is getting overdose education and Narcan or Naloxone out into the community for those at risk and those loved ones and family and network members who may need it, but also having access to treatment for those who have opioid use disorder or at risk to medication-assisted treatment or medication for opioid use disorder, having access to it, but also having the support and navigation through using peers to help people recognize they may have an issue, but there is help, and also helping people stay in treatment once they get in there. So it's been also, we've been looking at also a practice of looking at safer prescribing patterns when it comes to pain management, um, and certainly the New York State has done a great job in, in reducing some prescriptions. We've seen a drop in the last couple of years, around 10% drop through different strategies, but through prescription monitoring programs and iStop, but we have a, uh, more of a job to do in helping educating providers as they're doing pain management, but also having conversations with their patients and those clients who are coming in the door to help them navigate a system that is often very confusing. So if I understand you correctly, you're looking for best practices just about anywhere you can find them and then hoping to kind of put them all in the same pot so they can be shared collectively everywhere. That's right. We, if we see this intervention, this Communities That Heal intervention is effective in our counties, then uh, eventually it will be disseminated around the country. Um, I have to say that we're 16 counties here in New York State, but because we're along with three other states, we have a total of 67 counties that we're going to be able to compare what works in order to address addictions, to address stigma that gets in the way of sometimes people accessing help or recognizing there is help, um, or sometimes even stigma among providers that gets in the way of them saying, yes, I will treat people with substance use disorders uh, when they walk into my, my office. So we're going to learn a lot from communities that have 23,000 people to cities that have 600,000 people. So there's quite a variety within our study. And you here locally in the CAT school skill region, we're working with Sullivan County, Orange, Ulster County, Green, and Columbia County. Um, and very proud of the work that they've been doing in these counties already. But with this study and this renewed, this kind of further in, uh, energy and coordination, we're, we're hoping that to move them forward, to, um, to expand what they're doing, to sustain what they're doing, and to really learn from them. Are, are any of the counties, either in New York or in the three other states, are any of the counties um, serving as control groups? Uh, to be compared with what goes on elsewhere, or, or will all the counties be be investigated uh, in the same fashion? That's that's right, Bill. For for all of those who are interested in research design, the the only way we can really know if something is effective is we have something to compare it to, right? So um, so that every county would have the intervention, we did a, a randomization in which we start with the first eight counties. Uh, in January, and then we we work with the second eight counties uh, starting in two years. So this is the same in all the four states. It's the same design. So we get to compare what happens during this period when we're not intervening in any way. We're just observing what happens in those counties that are in wave two, and we get to observe what happens in the wave one counties in the active intervention phase. So ultimately, every county will, will benefit from what you learn. That's, that's what we're hoping, uh, absolutely. That, okay. In other words, all, if, I'm, if, if I'm a resident of Sullivan County, I don't care. Oh, I'm just a control well. group and, and, and nothing's going to happen to me. Uh, so in the control group? It, exactly. The, the, some, some counties were a little disappointed that they were in the second wave. 
but uh, the truth is they may actually have a bit of an uh, improved intervention as we apply the lessons learned from what we're learning in this first two years. Now, it doesn't mean anyone's going to stand still by any means. People, people in communities are moving forward. They're making decisions. And, you know, very proud of, of, of the work that the local hospitals are doing, our local mental health and health directors are doing, to bring in uh, funding from many different sources um, to collaborate in, in this process. I mean, right there in Ellenville, for example, in Ellenville Regional Hospital has received several different grants from, um, from SAMHSA and other sources that they're working to collaborate with the local uh, strategic action team there in Ulster County to integrate the work that we're also supporting during the HEAL community study as well. I mean, we're learning from advanced uh, task force, uh, like over in Erie County, um, uh, that have shown much success in reducing overdose deaths. We're learning from them as they hone their strategies and advance them, but also in communities that have never had a task force or never had a coalition that kind of to, to work on these particular issues. What we're hoping is that, and certainly NIDA is hoping, is that we not only learn about the opioid uh, crisis, but also the, that we learn about addictions in general and how to improve the way we're treating and improving access to treatment for those who suffer with uh, the 50 million people who actually suffer with some kind of um, uh, addiction issue um, or problematic substance use. Um, yeah. Would that include um, uh, alcohol use? Well, I, I, absolutely. Of course, um, multi often people use multiple substances and actually rarely are using just one. Uh, sadly, you know, we're learning a lot from our medical examiners and our coroners that have partnered with us as well. Um, through toxicology reports, we're learning about often people have multiple substances in their system, uh, and that is one of the higher risk aspects when people are using polysubstances. Uh, certainly, we're seeing synthetic uh, opioids such as fentanyl, a leading uh, cause of death, often combined with other substances, even cocaine. Uh, and people are not aware sometimes. Um, alcohol is often involved in, in an overdose. What we are trying to also work with communities to really reach out to those who have survived an overdose and to really uh, reach them, to navigate them. Uh, first of all, that they and their networks have Narcan or, or Naloxone to help reverse a potential overdose, but also to, to really navigate them into care um, we know that medication is assisted treatment and works, especially along with counseling. Um, buprenorphine, um, methadone are really, have shown over many decades actually for methadone to be uh, effective. And having people in treatment, we then can also support them in other uh, uh, social determinants, if you will, that can impact risk uh, in one's life, certainly poverty, homelessness, or things that really contribute to the risk factors. We also know that this, is, this uh, epidemic affects all races, uh, ethnicities, and we really need to do a better job in making sure we're reaching out to our diverse community. Um, you mentioned the uh, uh, medical examination coroners. I don't know whether you saw the New York Times Magazine uh, article this week, this, this past weekend. Uh, it was titled Listening to the Dead about the really the emergence we have in terms of the, the, there are very few. We're, we're running out of medical examiners, and there are places where we, where we only have coroners that aren't properly trained. Uh, and just I posted on my own blog, uh, in 2016, I wrote an article for an essay for Nora Volkov for, the, uh, for NIDA, which was also called Listening to the Dead. Um, and my question is, uh, a lot of what you want to do depends on gathering good, good data. Um, how do you? What are you going to do about get, getting good data when they, you may not have the best collection uh, opportunities available? There's just inaccurate information about what happens when people overdose. Absolutely, Bill. This is really a, a critical issue, and we've actually been working for a, a while with our colleague. 
Dr. Jason Graham, who is the first deputy chief medical examiner in New York City, um, where he's been looking at a, um, a network strategy to engage those at risk uh, who have been around an overdose to better understand some of the causes, but also to improve the way that cause of death is actually uh, investigated and reported um, at the New York State Department of Health. The Office of Drug User Health also has been working uh, to improve the way that coroners and medical examiners do investigation and do reporting. And we're working as partners in that strategy as they've been trained in new software uh, at each county. They've actually been provided laptops to improve the way data is collected. And we, as a study, are actually doing a survey with medical examiners and toxicology labs to see what are the challenges and barriers to doing a a thorough investigation, but also getting back those results as soon as possible so communities can plan better their efforts uh, for outreach uh, and engagement for those at risk. But you're right, the data is often not shared sometimes. There are often barriers between silos, if you will. And so we're hoping as a study that we can help coordinate this data. We've been developing data use agreements, for example, like I said, with the state. And so we, we hope to bring together um, Medicaid data, EMS data, hospital-based data uh, to help better coordinate the efforts. For example, we've also been working with the State Sheriff's Association and we've been working with county sheriffs in each uh, of our, our, county, um, our county sample. And I have to say that, you know, We've been, we've been surveying and trying to understand the current landscape in a jail and some of the challenges to offering uh, health care in general, but also how to address the challenges that, that are, are working with someone who's coming with a substance use disorder um, and how to introduce and do a, an appropriate screening and then engage them in treatment that is most appropriate for them. But also they're most at risk. I, I know you know this, Bill, that when someone... Uh, either has been detoxed during uh, an incarceration um, or is not on the appropriate medication, sometimes they leave that jail and can overdose and die within days of that discharge. So we're, we're working with counties to do a better job at linking uh, specifically to programs so there's a seamless kind of navigation into care. Uh, if they're on medication, making sure they have enough medication to, to keep them until they can actually get that appointment. Uh, and so it's a real partnership, uh, not only with those jails, but actually the counties and the legislators are deciding where the budget's going to go. And I know these are difficult choices often uh, as well, but we're really partnering with them as part of the study as well. I've been very proud of the work right there in Ulster County um, in really uh, addressing this issue in the jail and just most recently have done an integrated strategy to make sure people leave with appointments to medical uh, care when they need them. Um, will you be doing anything with the prison system? Uh, my my impression, and I know this actually from firsthand because I know a young man has been incarcerated, um, that mostly uh, people that are in, in prison for an extended period of time only receive any sort of uh, counseling or, or serious engagement in the last six months, months of their incarceration. Uh, as opposed to the beginning when they first enter. So essentially, and I, this is probably not the politically correct term, but essentially you've got a prison full of what what you might call dry drunks um, until just shortly before they're released. And I'm sure that contributes to the problem uh, that happens, the susceptibility to overdose when, when people are released, right? Am I clear on that? Well, you you are, uh, I, but I have to say also, as part of the study, we we are so we are understanding and working with uh, the commissioner of probation and parole. We're also working with uh, Doc's uh, division of corrections uh, as they do some discharge planning from prisons, and we're helping and support communities to welcome back those who are discharged to our particular counties, so they can better navigate them. And you're right. Right now, they are doing um, medication-assisted treatment, medication for opioid use disorder within prisons. This is a new initiative. But also people are being trained in overdose prevention as well as 
uh, the utilization of Narcan. The, the treatments that are available in prisons, of, of course, are, do vary. I think your point is really well taken that uh, treatment needs to be, if possible, throughout, and also some sense of discharge planning, not just a few days before, but actually, if possible, uh, many weeks before, so that people have a, a good uh, transition uh, and also re- prevent not only uh, recidivism, but also uh, improve the quality of care that they get when they when they leave. So we are partnering with prisons, not so much intervening directly in prisons as part of this study, but more about linkage to care once they are released. When it comes to jails, we are working more closely with uh, our local county jails um, to provide and support them in providing services. And they are emerging as, as we speak in many of our local counties there in the Mid-Hudson um, as as um, you know, different strategies and partnerships are forming. Uh, OASIS has been very strong in actually in, in supporting collaborations with methadone programs that actually will bring the, the medication to the jail itself and help partner with those medical providers in jails to make sure people have access when, when they need it. Um, time is our enemy here. We can talk, talk for a long time. I've got two quick questions, if I may. Uh, what obstacles do you see to the success of the intervention? Um, uh, there are there are many. Um, at the same time, um, I, I you know I'm optimistic as well because we we have seen some the direction of the epidemic uh, overdose deaths are going. It appears in the right direction, going down. Uh, we want to understand what are the best factors to address those, but there are. I mean, resources we know are often challenged, especially in our smaller counties. Sometimes docs, providers are very hesitant to work with those with substance use disorder. I think that is certainly a challenge we have to address. Stigma is a huge barrier, not only for those with addictions or substance use disorders uh, to recognize the shame that certainly they can often feel, but it, it actually is stigma among providers. Who, who may not want to work with this population. So we are addressing that through a communication campaign also that has four phases, along with uh, really expanding the evidence-based practices that I mentioned earlier. So that, that's a big challenge, right? There's stigma. We also know was, that the political sure will stigma. can change mm-hmm. based on elections, based on funding cycles. So I think that is something we have to stay abreast of throughout and making sure that counties have the resources they need. Right. Uh, and one last question, if I may. Um, what, uh, what bright spots have, have you come across already? What have, any examples of things that encourage you? Well, a couple of things, really. I, I have many, by the way, I was saying. But when you listen often to families who have been impacted by, by this epidemic, you, you hear mothers who've lost sons and... Uh, the, the the actual passion they have for making a difference, or that the, that peer navigation, uh, Nick's ride, for example, over in the Cayuga County, it's an amazing um, community-based organization that is addressing uh, overdose immediately. They're actually having a peer who who actually goes to the scene and navigates those people who, to help. So those kind of efforts, I'm really impressed with, um, because people are making a difference. At the same time. Um, the bright spots, uh, I'm hearing that people already are thinking a lot about data. They're saying we need better data. We need to make more informed decisions. And that, to me, is also a bright spot because we as community providers uh, have to really look to the data to tell us, to help inform us, where should we put our efforts? And and we're hearing that conversation more and more. Terrific. I'm afraid as I look at the clock, we're going to run out of time. They, they're going to play some music. Just You'd think we were at the Academy Awards. They're going to play us off. But uh, <laughs> let me thank you very much. And uh, maybe we'll talk down the line and learn a little more about the study a year from now or something. I appreciate it, Bill. I'd be welcome to come back and, and tell you stories of the people, the heroic people actually that are working on this. And many of them are right there in your county, Sullivan County. Uh, really was hit hard, and they're actually working very uh, carefully in Orange County. 
So really proud of our, our neighbors. And thank you so much, Bill and Dr. Hunt. This is, sounds like a wonderful project, and we do really and sincerely uh, want to have those updates and those stories. Thanks, gentlemen. And Barbara, I would just add one thing. I, uh-huh. would, I would make sure that Dr. Hunt is aware of the Kingfisher Project because that's a perfect example. The project is a perfect example of what people are doing to make things better. Well, thank you for saying that, Bill, and that's thank right. you for all for being with, on board with us and on the air. Until next time. Yep. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. And we've been hearing from Bill Williams on First Monday with Bill Williams here at the Kingfisher Project and Dr. Tim Hunt, who is a part, who's one of the researchers with the Columbia University uh, School of Social Work study called Healing Communities. Coming up next, we're going to hear from Peggy Johansson. She is the director of the Mamakating Library and one of the organizers behind the Sullivan County Poet Laureate Initiative. And uh, Peggy will be telling us about it, but we are, she and the uh, Library Association is going to be looking for the second Poet Laureate for Sullivan County, the 2020 Poet Laureate, and uh, stay tuned for that. We'll be getting getting in touch with Peggy Johansson about the Sullivan County Poet Laureate, but right now we'll have a, something a little less poetic, and it's Tim Bruno talking with Sullivan County Communications Director Dan Hoost about county preparedness in the event of an occurrence of the coronavirus here. The officials at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have warned that the novel coronavirus or COVID-19 might spread to U.S. communities. What does our community need to know? Well, I think they've actually said that it's inevitable that it is going to reach the U.S. We've already had, I think, uh, uh, several cases in the United States. And because of the method and rapidity with which this disease spreads, uh, I think we agree with them here at Sullivan County that it's just a matter of time before coronavirus uh, reaches New York State. We're close to one of the largest metropolises in the world, and it welcomes a lot of people coming and going, and so do we here in Sullivan County. We have very close ties with the city, and I wouldn't be surprised if that's uh, the, as they say in the health world, that's the disease vector that it makes its way here from there. But it could come from any location. Uh, and our public health services department is staying very much on top of this so that we'll know as soon as is humanly possible when the first cases of coronavirus are in the area. That said, currently there are no cases of coronavirus that we are aware of in Sullivan County or New York State. Do you feel that the public services in the county are prepared? As prepared as you can be. 
you're always uh, on these kinds of pandemic uh, possibilities working on the unknown because this is, uh, in fact, I think that's why they call it the 2019 novel coronavirus. It's new. Um, and we have not seen this particular version before. Uh, it was, of course, detected in China and uh, has not been previously found in humans, uh, according to anyone's research. And it is something that we are preparing for as much as possible using the information that we know, which is growing every single day. Um, but at this point, what we do know is uh, the symptoms are fever, cough, shortness of breath, very similar to other viruses. There are other kinds of coronavirus uh, that can even cause the common cold. Um, and it uh, is similar in, in some ways in terms of the symptoms to the flu as well. Um, spreads just as fast. And we're, we're dealing with, of course, lots of influenza cases right now. So we're taking the knowledge that we have from that and applying it to this. Because no one knows what community spread could look like from mild to severe, um, what can families do to protect themselves? Uh, what what are we doing to prepare, and how should we prepare? Well, first off, people should remain calm and choose informed knowledge rather than uninformed fear. This is something that there are still more facts to be determined, but public hysteria or just constantly listening to the negative news reports without actually researching what we do know about coronavirus and how to fight it. It's just going to lead to anxiety. And anxiety and fear, they can be good motivators, but often, especially in cases like this, they can be something that simply gets in the way of an effective response. We're not asking people to run for the hills. We're already in the hills anyway. <laughs> but we're asking folks to approach it the same way that you do with your personal hygiene currently uh, and, and avoiding viruses. You need to be washing your hands often. If you can't do it with soap and water, do it with uh, um, a hand sanitizer. Um, if you're uh, going to be uh, out and about when you're coughing or sneezing, whether or not you think you have something, cover your mouth and nose with a tissue or use your sleeve. Don't use your hands because you use your hands to touch your face, and uh, that's how this can get transmitted. Um, just sneeze or cough into a tissue or a sleeve. Um, if you're uh, traveling uh, someplace, uh, either inside or outside of the country, um, make sure that you know what they're dealing with in that location um, as much as possible. Uh, I don't think that travel to China at this point is recommended, but I also don't think that it has been restricted. Uh, so in particular, if you're uh, traveling to China or if you've come back from China recently and you're experiencing these symptoms, that's something to take very seriously. Um, speaking of which, if you are experiencing uh, the symptoms I mentioned before with cough or shortness of breath or fever, uh, seek medical care, but call ahead before you go and tell them about your symptoms, and they'll ask you if you traveled anywhere, um, what kind of symptoms are you experiencing. Um, these uh, questions will lead to answers that will help inform them as to whether there is a concern about coronavirus, influenza, uh, or if it's maybe more something along the lines of the common cold. Our healthcare providers are here to help, but they're human too, and they don't want to uh, catch whatever it is that you may have. And finally, the only other thing I would say is uh, clean and disinfect objects and surfaces in your home and workplace fairly often, uh, especially if you're living or working in a place where a lot of people are coming and going. And are the uh, things that you can buy at the store uh, good enough to help prevent this spread if you're uh, using just some basic products that you would buy, or do you need to get something else? No, no. At, at this point, use the the usual products that you're familiar with and that have worked for you. Just more there's often. No advice. Yeah, there's no advice at this point uh, that I'm aware of to use anything special. There, there's been talk about uh, if the disease really got ramped up here, the the face masks of a certain level might be necessary. But a that hasn't happened, and b. We want those face masks to be available first to our first responders uh, and our health care providers. 
So we're not asking people to go out and make purchases of face masks that uh, aren't necessary right now and might deprive our first response agencies from the necessary equipment that they need to respond to this should it ramp up. Right. Yeah, CDC does not recommend that people who are well wear face masks. So they want the, the people right. that are healthcare professionals recommending you wear one or, or if you're sick. Uh, now, are there things that folks should buy to prepare? Should you have a two-week supply of water and food and medications? Uh, it's always wise to be prepared. Uh, I've heard three weeks. I've, or excuse me, I've heard three days. I've also heard two weeks. Um, at this point, we're not advising a specific uh, length of time. Uh, I would say probably a minimum of two to three days. But beyond that, uh, that's a personal choice. We're not looking at this as something that is going to uh, bring society to a grinding halt, uh, but we also are looking at it as there could be some time where if, if uh, local stores or healthcare agencies or doctor's offices briefly got overwhelmed, that it would be valuable to have a multi-day supply of whatever your needs are, um, but not in a way where people should be panicking and emptying the store shelves of whatever they have. Have what you think could hold you over for at least a few days. And if you want to go to the two weeks, fine, but we're not there yet where we can say for with any certainty have this amount of time uh, of uh, supplies at hand. What about schools? Should folks keep their children home from school? Absolutely not. Uh, your school will be keeping you informed as a parent uh, and as a student for what you need to be aware of and uh, where you need to be. Uh, we're working with school districts to prepare for uh, any outbreak of coronavirus. Um, and there are, of course, uh, mild measures like I talked about, with, and the schools are already engaged in and making sure objects and surfaces are kept clean and symptoms are responded to promptly. And that goes right up to uh, any uh, responses that we might have to take during outbreaks, which theoretically down the road could close a school. But at this point, uh, we are uh, hoping that's not going to be the case, and we are not at all recommending people keep their children home from school or stop patronizing shops or restaurants or going where they need to go around the area, because Life has to continue on, and at this point, simply um, not participating in what you normally participate in because of a fear of a potential virus that hasn't even reached our borders yet um, is is an extreme action to take, and one that, that will impact not only your life, but the lives of the people around you, and it's just not something that we feel is necessary to do right now. This is... Uh, this is a, something we're taking very seriously, but we also have lives to live, uh, a society to be a, a part of, and uh, our children need to learn. They need to be in school getting the education that allows them down the road to be productive, healthy citizens. Let's remind folks again once more what they can do, the basic things that they can do to help the spread of any respiratory diseases. Avoid touching your eyes, mm -hmm. nose, and mouth. Co mm -hmm. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue or, or your elbow. Make sure you throw that tissue away if you're using that. Clean and disinfect frequently touched surfaces and objects. And wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. And I'll add one more thing to it, that if you haven't gotten your flu shot, get your flu shot. At this point, uh, there's not evidence that the coronavirus is affected by the flu shot, but the flu certainly is, and it's one more thing to arm yourself against illness, uh, especially since right now we're at the height of the flu season in the area. And that, for us, is a very current and very real issue. Coronavirus is a real issue, but for us here currently, it hasn't yet arrived. Flu is here. And it's here in large numbers. And so if you haven't gotten your flu shot, we would very much urge you to get your flu shot. There's also a general information line for people who have questions about coronavirus, that if 
they have anything that they think might uh, they might need to ask about or just want to set their mind at ease, they can call this number. It's one eight 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 three six four three zero six five. I'll say it again: eight 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 three six four three zero six five. And there are also, of course, plenty of online resources. Uh, the uh, Centers for Disease Control has a, uh, a whole series of pages dedicated to this, cdc.gov slash coronavirus. Uh, the New York State Health Department also has uh, several pages about it at health.ny.gov. And for our listeners in Pennsylvania, it's uh, yeah. health.pa.gov. And it's the 888 number. Um, is that a local number? Or is that a national? Where, where does that take me? No, that's a national number. That's not a local number. Our, of course, our public health services department in Sullivan County is certainly happy uh, to answer questions, but because uh, we don't have uh, a huge staff and we're very busily engaged in preparing for this and responding to uh, all sorts of other uh, health issues that we daily have to deal with, I would recommend people give a call first to that 888 number. And lots of information coming in, and, and the best way to stay up to date is to Either call that number or go to one of those websites, and and more importantly, don't panic, right? Arm yourself with information. It's a much better alternative than simply uh, huddling in fear about something. We will, at the county level, keep people very well aware of what the latest is. We will be playing a critical role in the response should coronavirus reach Sullivan County. And it'll be our job to work closely with our residents, our citizens, our neighbors, and our friends to respond to this. And we're going to be responding in a non-hysterical, non-panicking way. And we ask our residents to do the same. We can work together to work through this, and uh, that is, that's what we intend to do. And we're already planning for that now. Dan Hoost from the Sullivan County Government Communications Office. Uh, thank you very much for giving us the latest update on the coronavirus. Thanks for having me. And you were just hearing from Sullivan County Director of Communications, Dan Hoost, and also WJFF's Tim Bruno on the county preparedness plan here in Sullivan County in the event of an occurrence of the coronavirus. Coming up next, we're going to hear from Peggy Johansson, director of the Mamakating Library and one of the organizers behind the Sullivan County Poet Laureate Initiative. Hi, Peggy. Hey, Barbara. Good nice to, to talk to you. Nice to talk to you, too. Uh, so tell us what's happening. Then a new a new uh, poet laureate is being sought. Yes. Uh, well, and this is from the Sullivan Public Library Alliance, and um, we have had a wonderful poet laureate for the year of well, let's see, since June first, twenty nineteen, and and his term is ongoing. That's Mark Blackford. And so now we're seeking the second um, Sullivan County Poet Laureate, and that term will actually begin June 1st, so there'll be a month overlap where they can kind of work with each other. Great. And uh, we're, we're accepting applications. Okay, so how would one apply? The information is available at the Mamakating Library website, so that's org. Okay, so there's and an application, guidelines, and uh, right. there's a deadline. What's that deadline? The deadline is March 31st. Okay, so we have about, so it's not, about a month. Go ahead. Right, we have a month. Um, it's not actually an application like you fill, up, fill in the blanks. It provides the information that you need if, for anybody who's interested. So... Um, Somebody would have to submit, um, let me just get to that right here. They would have to submit a statement of interest, a one-page biography or a maximum of one page, and three sample original poems, one of them specific to the spirit of Sullivan County. Okay, that's fantastic. Well, I, I do know that, um, do, you, do you feel that the first uh, round was a, was a success? Absolutely, absolutely. 
I think Mark has done such an amazing job serving as kind of a, a poetry ambassador for the county. He's uh, hosted uh, readings and or open mics or talks on poetry at almost all of the public libraries. So the requirements for the position are to present readings at a minimum of nine venues in the county, which includes at least one of um, at least one presentation at each of the public libraries, and then at least one at each of our partner organizations. So that would be, as of right now, that DVIA, Delaware Valley Arts Alliance, and um, CAT. Last year, it was Catskill Art Society as well. And Bethel Woods. All right, that's and, right. One of my favorite and, memories of the Poet Laureate was he op- really opened the 50th anniversary year just before Arlo Guthrie took the stage. That was a fantastic moment and a great poem. Yeah, it was totally appropriate to Woodstock about uh, how the um, the deli, I guess it was, on um, the, the main... Um, on Broadway in Monticello, had made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Oh yes, that's like, right. Like tons of them, and so gave fantastic. That would stock at the original concert. All right. Well, this gives us something to go on here for all the poets out there that would like to apply for this, or if you know a person who is a poet and and would be eligible. And once again, uh, the the guidelines are at mammocatinglibrary dot org. And Peggy, can they call you at the library if they need information directly from you? Sure, they could actually call um, their own public public library is, uh, or I can provide information at 845-888-8004. Okay. All right, so we're we're running a little low on time, but we will uh, look forward to uh, catching up with you once the process uh, goes forward and we have a new Poet Laureate. Thank you so much, Peggy. Great. Thank you, Barbara. Okay. Take care. Have a good night. That was Peggy Johansson, the director of the Mammocating Library. And once again, for information on the Poet Laureate application, go to mammocatinglibrary.org. And now, to wrap up Making Waves, Kevin Greff will be speaking with... Suni Sullivan, Associate Professor of Theater and Speech, Jessica Lopez-Barkle, about the two upcoming plays at the college. Hello, Jessica. Yes. How are you doing? So Good. How are you? Good. So tell us a little bit about the, the two plays coming up. I'm actually going to uh, defer to the director, Nick Lopez, who is okay. sitting next to me because... <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Hello, Nick. Nick, you're, you're the adjunct professor of theater at SUNY Sullivan. Yes, um, I am. To start off, can you tell us the dates that you'll be performing, the plays will be performing? March 6th through 14th. Okay. Wednesday through Saturdays at 8 p.m. and one Sunday performance at 2 p.m. that first weekend. Okay. Can we, can we talk a little bit about the two plays? Sure. Um, you're going to be. What, what would you like to know? <laughs> well, you 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 have two a pair of two here. We got um, Zoo Story and Dutchman. And can you tell us a little bit why you selected those two? Uh, the two pieces they came out uh, around similar timelines, and they have. Uh, a really cool perspective on two different types of communication going on in New York City at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, in both cases, in both plays, uh, the communication between two strangers uh, often sort of crosses the line and can be either um, violent or, or sexual or both at the same time. And uh, through this process and comparing the two pieces, which are not often put together, we can see, compare, and contrast um, the societal differences between uh, different people of different classes, different walks of life, and, and just uh, different character interactions. And what what is the the storyline with Zoo Story? Zoo Story is uh, Albie's first. Uh, I'm sorry, Edward Albie's first uh, play that he wrote, I believe. 
And he um, basically, uh, a lot of people believe it's autobiographical in the sense that the main character, Jerry, is uh, sort of based after the playwright itself. But uh, the, the, the long and short of it is a, a basically uh, Peter is just hanging out um, in the park his, on his favorite bench reading a book. And uh, Jerry, who is a complete stranger, is passing through looking for something. We're not quite sure what that is and runs into Peter and decides that he wants to connect with Peter. I'm really, really connect with Peter. Um, in a way, connect fast and, and, and connect quickly and uh, reach new levels of, we're not quite sure, love, uh, empathy, um, some type of new discovery, uh, which in the end, uh, well, it's not quite what we expect. I don't want to spoil anything. Yeah, for, yeah, we for don't want to spoil it here. Yeah. <laughs> Can you, so tell us a little bit about the Dutchman. Dutchman um, is a little creepier. It's uh, because it's also set in New York City, but it's also set sort of in a dark subway, uh, on a subway train. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's very similar to Zoo Story in the sense that two strangers meet, but in this case um, it's a white woman and a young black man. Uh, they meet on an empty train and... Uh, uh, our our antagonist Lula um, has a, a specific objective when it comes to going out and, and meeting a specific type of, of person. In this case, Clay, uh, the young African American male, has uh, um, a lot on uh, a lot to deal with when it comes to Lula. And just like Zoo Story, the connection and the communication and uh, the objectives of one particular character uh start off they start off seemingly innocent enough but as the show continues you realize that it it takes a somewhat sinister turn and once again I don't want to spoil too much for those who who haven't read or seen Dutchman okay can you t- talk about the um the playwrights oh uh, yeah uh, Edward Albee um oh great playwright wrote uh, also famous for the uh, play who's afraid of virginia wolf um just a fantastic wordsmith, especially when it comes to the musicality of just dialogue in general. Uh, uh, he's sort of like a, uh, if playwrights were jazz musicians, he'd definitely be up there, you know. So um, he's a very famous, made all his own, uh, produced, directed a lot of his own stuff, um, made other, besides uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, another great play, A Seascape, um, uh, Three Tall Women, uh, and just Produced and uh, wrote all the way up into his death. I believe it was 2008. I'm not quite sure. I have to double check on that. Um, but uh, Imamu Amir Baraka, who wrote Dutchman, uh, was the former poet laureate of this fabulous country that we live in, um, was a poet by trade. And this was his first play, which he won the Obie Award for uh, when it had first came out for for making uh, a lot of waves on the off Broadway scene in the in the mid 60s, I believe. And- So, yeah. Okay. Um, why these two? Um, I think we were looking for plays that went on a theme of the spirit of 1969. And we always, in our theater program, do a musical, a classical piece, and a contemporary piece. And um, these two plays... At, for our contemporary offering, really sort of hit the nail on the head of some things that were occurring in this time period that were upsetting people, um, class uprising, racial tensions, gender tensions, um, but just, just a general unrest, which I think was something that we struggled with in the 1960s, and of course it came to a head in 1968, and then by 1969, people wanted change, and they were going to find change in their, in their areas and by protest, and that continued through the 1970s, and we got to have lots of growth from there. However, I think these two pieces still highlight things that have not been resolved and continue to be problems for mm-hmm. our students here at SUNY Sullivan. I think Amazi Browning is sitting here with us. He's playing the part of Clay. And, you know, it's something I think when we discuss it 
in regards to race, this hasn't changed a lot for young black men, you know, and he, he has talked a little bit about that. Okay, Jessica? Um, we have another student in the play, Kervin Phillips the second and you know it's just something that they write about in their papers and things that they struggle okay. with and i and we see that as important jessica um, i'm running we're running out of time here we're running out of time yes so um quickly when's the play and how can they get tickets march 6th through the 14th wednesday through saturdays at 8 p.m one sunday per